Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Associate Executive Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. I am very, very excited about today's show. Um, This is the first of a two-part series on holistic admissions. Um, And so today I welcome Ms. Kim DeBrew to the show. Hi, Kim. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Um, Ms. DeBrew currently serves as the Senior Vice President for Access, Diversity, and Inclusion at the American Dental Education Association. Among her many duties at IDEA, she works with a program focusing on incorporating holistic review practices across the nation's dental schools. I've had the pleasure of working with Kim over the years, most recently jointly presenting workshops at a few AAVMC member institutions specifically on this topic. So today, Kim will discuss the IDEA Holistic Review Program and its impact on admissions and diversity in dental education. And she'll talk a bit about how some of our veterinary schools might move closer towards um, uh, becoming more holistic admission review institutions. So Kim, welcome to the show. Lisa, it is a pleasure to join you. Yes, wonderful. We're so glad that you joined us. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about IDEA? It's really kind of one of our sister organizations, if you will. Sure. So IDEA is the membership organization for pre-doctoral dental education, allied dental education, and advanced dental education. So we like to say that we are the voice of dental education with 66 U.S. dental schools, about 10 Canadian schools, and several hundred allied programs and advanced education programs. We have about 20,000 members. So um, what I would say about this work is it is always a pleasure to collaborate across K Street, across uh, Washington with our sister brother organizations. Um, It's been really great to, in some ways, go on the stump with AAVMC and with um, our our colleagues in nursing and in pharmacy. And this topic, holistic review, has really uh, resonates. It's a common thread through all of our work. Absolutely. And I'm really excited because as many um, of uh, the folks in the veterinary community know, AAVMC is moving locations, and so we'll be at 655 K Street. Um, And I believe your office will be downstairs from ours? Yes, so we're on 8. Yeah, so actually you'll be upstairs, I think, because we're going to be on, I believe, seven. So um, so we will be building mates, making our collaborations that much easier. We can meet at the cafe. Yes, looking forward to it. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, how did you, how did Adia get involved in, in this issue um, around uh, holistic review? What, what prompted um, the work that you're doing? Sure. So I, I'll go back to 2001, I was heavily involved in uh, leading a national grant-making effort that focused on health equity. Our goals were to um, ensure that the dental education curriculum included more social and behavioral sciences, and that students rotated out into community settings um, in a more robust way. The third goal of the program was to do something about the diversity of the profession. Certainly, um, dentistry, as other health professions uh, know, it really really is trying to grow the numbers, is to grow the recruitment, retention efforts. So what we were seeing in the program early on is that the efforts we were putting into place and encouraging our schools to engage in uh, resulted in increased applications. So for the 15 schools that had these Robert Wood Johnson Foundation grants, their their, um, applicants went up. So we thought this is a great thing. But what was plateauing was students that were inviting for interviews and that were offered acceptances. And we tried to 
unpack what was going on within the schools. And we learned that the admissions process was a barrier in many cases. So we um, kind of enlisted the content experts in our field to try to figure out how we might ensure that the processes that were taking place on the ground were a little bit more robust and took into consideration a broader uh, number of criteria instead of just looking at kind of the numbers, the traditional numbers metrics, which in our case are DAT scores and, um, and undergraduate GPAs in science and overall GPA. Our colleagues in medicine had already invested heavily in this work. Um, they talked uh, at length about um, an acronym known as EAM, which is a balanced review of a candidate's experiences, attributes, and metrics, um, those being considered in balance with one another and really based in the mission of the institution. Um, so we worked with AAMC. We said, okay, um, tell us about the template that you use to talk to your schools about this work. And what we turned that into was a formal training program. We enlisted 10 members of our admissions community, admissions and student affairs community, to uh, participate in a training program. Uh, Robert Wood Johnson ultimately funded that program in 2006. And we thought the power of that model was that we were engaging peer, peer uh, educators and peer um, admissions practitioners in the work. What they did was they had a standard template that talked about you know, how committees are uh, formed around mission. We talked about training the admissions committee members. We talked about review of non-cognitive variables, looked at some of the best practices around that uh, developed by scholars such as William Sedlicek. Uh, we talked about the legal ramifications of race-conscious admissions and some of the legal cases that have uh, preceded uh, this work. And what I would, what to our wonder and uh, surprise, um, there was great buy-in to um, this model. We have now conducted about 30 workshops at 66 of our dental schools to date. And uh, we've now engaged a second round of trainers in, in these activities. And I think, um, I think this probably has exceeded our wildest expectations. Uh, we participated in a national study of, um, of health professions in 2014. And this was a funded uh, project by a, an organization called Urban Universities for Health, which is a kind of consortium of the AAMC, the Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities. And um, they wanted to look at holistic admissions practices across health professions. And guess what? Dentistry was number one. 93% of our institutions reported uh, significant holistic review practices. So we were excited about that. That's great. That's really, really great. So. Um, before my next question, we have a lot of viewers watching live today. If you have a question, please don't hesitate to drop that in the event page or on the YouTube page. Um, our wonderful producer, um, William Willis, is behind the scenes and he will make sure that we get those questions. So uh, please do drop the questions um, online. Um, so Kim, can you explain exactly what holistic admissions is? What is it? What does it mean? And what isn't it? What it's not. <laughs> so I want to start with what it's not. What it's not is it's not an opportunity to lower the standards of an institution. I think that's a commonly held myth um, that it is, it is a tool, one tool of many, to help a school reach its diversity and inclusion goals and reach its goals in general. Uh, and really, that's the point that I want to underscore. Um, it's a flexible way to accomplish your admissions goals. Um, when I said a minute or so ago that it's mission driven, what that means is 
Um, it's your aspirations about who you are and who you want to be as an institution, why you exist. I think um, many institutions probably could say by rote uh, what their triple aim is. It's to you know, have a robust research agenda. It is to educate students um, in the highest quality that they can. It is to conduct high quality research um, and provide um, high quality um, patient or in the case of veterinary medicine, animal care. Uh, and I think it's equally important for institutions and for admissions committees, frankly, to develop their own uh, mission statements um, that really reflect an alignment with what the school overall is trying to do. Uh, for example, if, a, if there's a state school that has a mission around meeting the needs of that state, I think an admissions committee certainly has to take that into consideration. Um, if, a, if a school wants to recruit rural students, and that is critically important to take into consideration. So I think my key about the holistic approach is really it allows for a lot of flexibility steeped in a deep commitment to mission. And the way that schools achieve that is what I, I said earlier. It's looking equally at the experiences and the attributes and the metrics, the sort of the non-cognitive and the uh, and the cognitive variables in balance with one another. So um, what has the impact been um, for, I guess, structural diversity in dental education as more of your schools have moved to more holistic evaluations of applicants? Well, one of the um, positive things that I think has happened to sort of support this work is that in 2013, our accreditation standards were revised to include a more robust language around diversity. And so now we talk about compositional diversity in addition to um, two other measures of diversity, which are curricular diversity and um, climate and the interactional diversity. So I think that um, these two kind of sets of policies kind of going into into play at the same time really have been complementary. So as schools are um, developing new strategies and tools to admit the class they want, then they also have to be prepared to meet the needs of the class they want, both in the curriculum and in the climate. And I think um, I think actually having a climate and, and a focus on climate actually helps you say, look, Here's what we found out about the students that do well in our school. Here's how we support them. And therefore, we can, we can try to recruit the class that will do well in the environment that we have or the environment that we're trying to create. So I would say um, very, very positive results in the study that I cited earlier um, of those admissions outcomes, the admissions outcomes that were reported 76% of the dental schools in that study said that the diversity of the incoming class had increased. 88% of the schools said that they reported an average GPA that was in, unchanged or increased. 100% of the schools reported graduation rates that were under, unchanged or increased. And 84% of dental schools reported the average number of attempts for passing our licensure exam were unchanged or improved. So very, very positive self-reports from the schools that participated in that study. Sure, sure. I mean, I think that the, the data that you've just cited is really compelling and, and really gets at that argument that, that we do hear often in terms of thinking about diversity conscious um, admissions practices and policies um, really do not ever need to consider a lowering of standards. I mean, it really is, um, uh, it really is um, a, um, a myth, if you will. Yeah, yeah. totally agree. I, um, yeah, I think that I think that what's what's called upon is kind of our best creative selves 
in this work um, if you start with what, what the class is that you want to build as a starting point, almost a visual about um, what that class might look like, what characteristics and qualities you value as an institution. If you start with the end in mind, then um, you're destined for success. And yes, it is more time intensive and labor intensive and resource intensive um, because it requires a lot of looks at applications and a structure that supports that review. Um, but I think if, it's, if, if the will is there, um, we can definitely talk about um, the way and the way to get there. Some of the, the technical pieces of like how do schools go about doing this um, can you talk a little bit about the, the mission piece? So um, just as a, as a, I guess, a, a preview for next week's show, one of our institutions, Virginia, Maryland, that will be on talking about some of the things that they've done over the last couple of years, um, they actually, um, I believe it was maybe two or three years ago, um, changed the mission of the college to explicitly include the word diversity. Um, and um, as a result of that, they were able, they found that they were able to um, really justify doing some novel things at that institution with respect to recruiting, as well as taking um, a hard look at um, what they're doing specifically within the review process. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the mission um, driven activity and, um, you know, as as your schools move towards this, have they had to be um, review their missions and be more explicit and make changes um, as you know as this thing evolves? Yeah, I think um, I think most of the schools that have been able to make the most progress started there. Um, inevitably, this the mission that an individual unit. So if that's the veterinary medical school or um, the medical school, the dental school, the nursing school, they all have to align with, uh, with overall institutional mission. So that, that's a starting point. But within that, there, there are definitely uh, unit goals that are, that are critically important. Um, if, for example, um, I think I talked to uh, one of your institutions when we, we visited um, out at UC Davis and I remember that this, that school is, um, I, I don't remember, you may recall what kind of um, provider they're trying to train. Is it, do they want researchers as the primary? Uh, folks that were really interested in um, public health, preventative okay. health. Um, preventative health. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, okay, let's, let's start with that as a, as a, as a frame. Um, that's a school that really might want to uh, first, hold up. Okay, public health is our frame. All right, what are what are the population kinds of health issues that we want to address, and who are the pro providers that we want to to look at? That are they California residents? Is it it's a California school? Um, what are the facets of that kind of 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 uh, preparation that we want to take into consideration? What's the volunteerism look like? What's the work experience look like? And with a view towards diversity, how might a diverse candidate be present, presenting in that environment? So for example, if you value um, shadowing or volunteerism or work experience that's related to public health, um, might a student from a disadvantaged background that's had to work um, be disadvantaged by that, right? They can't do the, the, the number of hours or the types of experiences that you might want. So your mission statement might reflect that. It might, um, it might need to be tweaked a little bit to talk about um, the breadth of the kinds of candidates that you think will make um, good um, healthcare providers in that context. So I think um, starting with the end in mind has, start, has, has sort of emerged as a best practice for a number of our dental schools, and I think it, um, it translates across health professions very nicely. 
Um, so could you, let's get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts, yeah. if you will. So um, how do institutions do this? <laughs> what kinds of, um, of uh, admissions practices kind of help institutions um, move towards uh, holistic? I mean, what does the optimal um, review process look like? Um, so I always start, so I would say, okay, mission, start with mission. And the second step, I would say, start with your data, right? It's looking at what you have done over time and what it's yielded. Okay, so in 2014, we uh, did recruitment at five schools, uh, schools with high enrollment, let's just say diversity is your goal, five schools with high high uh, enrollment of historically underrepresented students, right? We did outreach, it yielded this many applications. Um, here were the, the grades and GREs and the scores associated with this, those students. Here's the non-cognitives and here's what it yielded. We were able to accept them, we were able to interview how many. It's really taken a deep dive in your data. And so that's one year, but how did that look over time? How has it changed? And observing those changes and observing what practices you've had into place. And then it is saying, okay, here is where we want to go. What are some variables that we might have asked, that we might have yielded a different class if we had just, and you need to fill in the blank. And so that is, I, I would say, um, second to mission, uh, learning from your own data is probably the most powerful thing that you can do. Uh, we talked, talked a lot with the folks at UC Davis about um, learning from their own practices. They had uh, one admissions process um, several years ago. They changed it and then they are forming a task force to, to look at it again. I think that's very wise um, looking at how your institution may have changed over time. Um, and I'll get to this in a few minutes, but the Fisher, uh, Fisher II decision, it really underscores the importance of, of evaluating your practices, um, not just once, but really having a continuing process for monitoring and evaluating what the emissions process is doing. So that's one, one thing. I would say the other uh, last thing I would say is quantifying the value of your non-cognitives, right? So that sounds kind of counterintuitive, right? You've got, you've got numbers that tell you what you want to know about a student's academic index, but how about all those other things? And I think there are some very good tools. I would definitely um, recommend the big test by William Sedlicek, which has great, great tools and strategies for looking at non-cognitives. One of the things that AAMC is, um, is instituted and shares with its members is a worksheet on the strength of evidence. It's called the strength of evidence scale. And it really looks at the, some of those things that I talked about a second ago, which is if you are volunteering, all right, so 100 hours, is that better than, a, uh, than 75 hours, is that better than 25 hours? And how in balance with a student that may have had to work more, um, how valuable is that? And it really is, it's also the quality of those experiences and assigning weight and value to those. Um, and having schools really wrestle with that before their committee even starts looking at its first applicant. Okay. Now, one more thing, one more thing. Sure. I thought of my last thing. My last thing is sort of training and orientation for the committee, um, making sure that everybody is on the same page at the outset. Um, that has been a critically critical part of, of what's worked in many of our schools, having um, really setting forth what a, a committee is trying to do in a given year, and really having some training on on some of those uh, components that a committee thinks are most most valuable. This year, we're going to um, include a, a, a segment on unconscious bias for our admissions folks, and we want to make sure that um, that that our committee members know and our our, our member institutions know the role that bias can play in 
in interviews and really in all aspects of the of the of the admissions process. Okay, great. Um, before we get back to some of the questions that <laughs> that we have um, here, we do have a question um, from the field, sure. um, and the question is: Can you see in the future all professional schools taking on holistic admission? And what are three key benefits about a holistic approach? So absolutely, this um, I, I don't want to call it a movement, but this um, this body of work is really it's picking up steam here in Washington, and I think um, in our member institutions the ripples will be felt very soon. So we were asked to um, do some talks at the Association of Colleges of Pharmacy meeting. Um, this fall, and we have some of our admissions trainers that are going to uh, offer that that training. Um, in terms of benefits, I think um, the common thread is that all of our institutions are trying to provide quality educational experiences for all students. They're trying to improve quality health care, um, whether that's for um, for, for patients, for human patients, and for, and for animals. Um, we're trying to make sure that the workforce that we develop um, is credible with communities, uh, all communities, um, that there's greater language concordance and satisfaction. All of those things are core elements of all of the work that we do, and to the extent that we can um, put in place tools to make sure that the workforce that we are recruiting uh, into the professions is is able, frankly, to carry out those missions. I think uh, it'll be better for, for all of our professions. Sure. I think that it's also really important to note that I think while health professions in general have kind of led the charge um, into holistic um, uh, approaches to um, evaluating applicants. Certainly, um, we're not the only ones. Um, most of the cases, I mean, the Grutter and Gratz, I mean, the, the Gratz case um, in 2003 was a law school case. The law schools have really been looking at this issue. Um, and certainly, um, social work, the sociology profession in general kind of have really done a lot in this, um, as well as some of the other STEM disciplines have really started looking at how do we make sure that um, we have the type of workforce that we want for the future. And it is about raising the overall quality um, by way of diversity uh, as one element of quality. And so um, the, the, the literature is certainly much broader than just health professions. Absolutely. I, um, I was able to uh, attend a briefing earlier this week on the Fisher II case, and it was hosted by the Association of Education, I'm sorry, the American Educational Research Association, AERA. And, you know, one of my takeaways was uh, sound science informs good policy. And they talked a lot about um, the, the strength of this of the second of the Fisher II case and all of the amicus briefs that were presented really had a strong basis in the social sciences and that was across professional fields. Um, they talked about you know the benefits of, of cross racial interactions and um, being able to um, address racial isolation, for example. And I think for all of us, the next charge post, uh, post these legal decisions will be to figure out how we add to the science about what's happening in our professional programs and how access to care and other key things, health equity, is addressed through some of the work that we do, through having students have, frankly, positive experiences um, uh, in our in our education programs. Great. So, Kim, tell us on the ground, um, what are your schools doing? Are we talking 
I mean, you know, a lot of times we hear if schools have automated um, components mm-hmm. of um, their um, review of applicants. So, you, mm-hmm. for instance, you take in those quantitative metrics, you look for mm-hmm. a Z score based on something, and you have a cutoff, and then that next group goes to further evaluation, um, either like file review or um, they are automatically get offered interviews. So um, in terms of kind of what happens in the room, um, is there, are there cutoffs? Um, what kind of, what happens? So what happens is probably the great mystery, right? But right. Um, <laughs> tell what us actually what happens. What actually happens. However, I will say that we, I will tell you what we advocate for. We advocate for um, a real whole file review without cutoffs. Now, with with that said, I also would would say that schools are looking very closely at the students that they enroll and their ability to be successful. And looking at their own data. So for example, there are schools who have been wildly successful in getting a broad range of students in dental school, through dental school, very happily, successfully with a broad range of metrics and um, non-cognitives, right? What's made them successful is probably a lot of Um, ingredients within the school that contributed to that success. So I guess I'm I'm trying to say in sort of a very, not PC way, but sort of guarded way that really you have to look comprehensively at what your schools can can provide to a range of students. If, If you don't have any support services and, you know, don't have that much of a uh, diverse faculty and you don't have a lot of the infrastructure uh, to meet the needs of the students where they are, then you might have to develop a scale um, that, uh, that, that can support the students that you want to enroll. So those things have to be congruous. They cannot be incongruent. Um, and yeah, I would I would say that the the challenge in the nuts and bolts of it is making sure that your school can meet the students where they are. If you take that as the for, as the driver, um, then I think the policy that you have as an outgrowth will be stronger. So, um, Kim, how what's what does the applicant pool for? for the average dental school look like? So how many, for example, how many applicants would a school um, committee have to review in any given year? Um, Yeah, so that folks know that, so that folks kind of get a sense of, um, if you're talking about kind of full file review, how many files (laughs) are they reviewing? So, just a typical number. Uh, yeah. Our class size is about 80. A school may have about 1,200 applicants okay. with 80 slots. Okay. How does that? I don't know how that. Yeah, uh, for matches. for some of our schools, that's pretty. That's pretty. For some schools, um, that's pretty comparable in veterinary medicine and even maybe a little bit on the high end. But um, class size, our average class size nationally is about 95. And um, the range of applicants to seats at an individual institution may range from 500 to 12, 1,300. All right. So. And there are schools with, with many more than Absolutely. 1,200. Yes. Sure, sure, sure. But yeah, in, in terms of you know what what kind of staffing and resource it takes, I mean, it's a labor-intensive process, and um, I think I think our schools are being creative with um, the resources that they have. Um, Some are, some probably, I won't say that all, but I I know that 43 of them said that they're doing robust holistic reviews. So so some may still have cutoffs. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, 
you know, we encourage them to just keep pushing the envelope toward mm -hmm. um, looking at, okay, if, if students between, let's say, uh, I'm just going to be arbitrary, a 3-3 GPA in science and a 3-5, if those students are, are getting into dental school somewhere, then what might you be missing out on if, you, if your cutoff is a 3-5, for example, right? What, so, so it's really looking inside your, your numbers and, and figuring out, okay, is this what we need to do to, to recruit the class that we want? Sure. This is a, you know, this is an issue for me that I, I look at um, with my institutional research hat on. Um, when I look at our applicant pool, certainly nationally, we have a, a ratio that we would certainly like to change. Our ratio right now is about 1.6 applicants for every one seat, right? So, um, so it's not one to one yet, but but when we look at the metrics, um, when we look at some of the quantitative metrics um, for that pool, we see that less than I mean, it's about 18% nationally have a GPA that is a 2.9 or lower, right? Right, and so I mean, we have 80% of our pool that is is 3.0 or above. That's a pretty deep pool, right? Yes. And especially since we do have some schools where they don't have a GPA cutoff until about 2.8, 2.9. Now, um, you know, what's the difference between a 2.8, 2.9, and a 3.5? There may be a lot of difference, and in, in actually, in the grand scheme of things, when you take into non into account non-cognitives. Um, they both may be able to handle the technical work, and but one may have additional non-cognitive um, strengths that the other does not. Correct. But, yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of, of, of variability, and I've argued that despite the fact that our pool is um, not as deep as we would like academically um, on the academic metrics, is actually um, probably deeper than than we would expect it to be. Um, with with those numbers, so you said that you have a group of schools. I guess it was forty some schools that say that um, they're practicing robust holistic admissions, which means that you know the other sixty percent are, are kind of moving in that way. And and as with anything in education, we are looking about uh, we're looking at continuous improvement, right? Yeah. So what can schools? What are some of the things that schools can do? to move closer to holistic admissions practices, recognizing that um, these changes will likely happen incrementally. Yeah, I, um, I agree. The, the, I would say that the biggest shift that probably has, has to occur in the schools that are not there yet are, um, are looking at the non-cognitives at the initial screening process. Um, it is very, it's very hard to um, do the full, full file review of 12,000 applicants with just a few folks looking at the apps um, at the outset, right? It's, it is a, it is a challenge. They need, um, need to recruit um, more volunteers, frankly, to be parts of admissions committees in order to, to get that done. So I would say. The first thing is, um, is trying to shift that practice. And really what that means in our community is, is trying to shine a light on what is possible. I can't underscore enough how important it has been to have these conversations at our national meetings, um, to share uh, with peer leaders. To, we have a, a, a section within our organization um, that focuses on admissions and student affairs issues and having that body be able to wrestle with the details has been great. And it's also been great to feature schools that have been um, at this work for a while and show them what is possible. Um, we've been pleased to see that some schools are, um, are wrestling with different models for how to do some of the work. Some schools are engaged in multiple mini interviews. 
um, some schools to try to kind of look at a broader number, weight, a broader number of, um, of variables and how students may perform under different conditions. Um, one school I know is doing, trying to do interviews, video interviewing. Um, so I think, I think there is movement, I think, showcasing some examples of what's possible um, is helpful. Um, one thing that we're trying to get um, schools that may not be, uh, may still be struggling a little bit is maybe thinking about just simple things like um, when they are considering candidates for um, for interviews. So what we found is a lot of our candidates of color are applying later in the process, right? If we have an admissions uh, season that begins, say, in the summer of 2016 and closes in December, um, if students are waiting until much later in the process, they're not getting um, the benefit of early looks and early consideration. So we're Trying to trying to both get students to apply early certainly that would be a great fix, but also um, getting our schools to kind of change when and how they look at candidates. So sometimes it's the more subtle and small tweaks that um, that have the potential to have good impacts. Sure. So um, another big question that I think that folks probably are asking is how, I mean, when we talk about, we're talking about human resources in terms of full file reviews, so we need more volunteers, but just um, managing that, um, you know, have schools found that it's just more costly to do holistic evaluation? We've not, you know, it's a great question. We have not asked that of, of schools. Um, um, and even if we had asked it, I don't know if I would share it broadly. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you know, I, I think we've had we've had tremendous support for from our leadership. Um, and when I say leadership, I mean um, school leaders at the highest level for this work. We um, we have been offering this um, this workshop. Uh, initially at no cost to to our schools just because we weren't sure um, you know, how much interest there would be we wanted to offer we didn't want to reduce barriers to sure. to um, being able to take advantage of it and now we um, now that we've said that schools should pick up the cost of, uh, of having trainers come uh, we have not lost a step we are really excited that um, okay. schools still want the training so so yes, my my inclination would be that there's a, certainly a, um, an increased cost, and I have seen um, a resolute commitment of our of our leaders to um, to do what it takes, and um, and that is if we can keep providing them with good information about the impact that holistic review is having. Sure, data and I think data drives it. Data drives it. You're the data lady. Yes, data does drive it, and um, yeah, further underscored, I, f I think that um, the outcome of the Fisher case and some of the language in, in, the, in the actual decision um, does, does well in supporting this case. Uh, um, I think I printed out uh, one. Yeah, so those schools, wrote. yeah, the Fisher case is, a, is, a, is, yeah. is great to talk about and transition for um, our last few minutes. So, um, you know, what about the, the, yeah. the recent Fisher case that um, that decision came down last week, um, and um, so you know, what are some of those recommendations, and what yeah. is the uh, you know for schools that are really kind of worried about the legalities around this, um, and um, you know what did the Fisher case say again? They kind of doubled down on previous yeah. <laughs> findings, so. First of all, I consider it to be a victory for uh, for diversity and for, for affirmative action in higher education, and certainly in, in our professional realm, the implications of of a case in um, in a an undergraduate uh, 
uh, school certainly have has ramifications for all of the work that we do and the discussion we're having today. So in the Fisher case, um, the University of Texas, Austin, uh, had in place already for its admissions a 10% plan in which uh, the top 10% of graduating high school seniors were granted admission um, that filled about 75% of its seats. The remaining 25% were filled, uh, the freshman class were filled um, with an admissions um, consideration that included both an academic index and a personal achievement index. So the academic index included SAT scores and high school performance, and the personal achievement index included a variety of factors, and race was one factor among many. So I don't know how clear it is in the court of public opinion, but um, this was race was a factor within a factor within a factor. Uh, to use um, a quote by uh, by Ted Shaw, who's a, a formal former head of the Legal Defense Fund of um, the NAACP. So it's it's a it was used in a very narrowly tailored way. So that's the first point that I I think should be underscored. Um, UT did a very uh, rigorous examination of of their policy because of um, a state statute, they were not able to use race in a, uh, they had to use it in a very narrowly tailored way. So the top 10% plan was a way that they thought they could uh, achieve diversity um, across, across the state because, you know, schools, you know, in Texas were, you know, for lack of a better word, sort of segregated. So the top 10% of a predominantly black school um, and the top 10% of a predominantly white school, okay, you sort of get some diversity. And they found that they still couldn't achieve that. So you, they used race in a very small way in this case. And that's what uh, Abigail Fisher was challenging. So so I guess what I want to say about, um, about um, this in relationship to holistic review is that um, figuring out ways for schools to uh, very carefully look at how they are achieving their diversity standards, which I think is a core tenet of holistic review. It is one factor among many. Uh, we talked about a balanced review of the experiences, the attributes, and metrics of, of schools. We also would like to, um, um, the, the court challenges all of us to engage in ongoing, uh, constant deliberation and reflection of our admissions policies um, and to give, um, uh, to give it constant looks, to give it, to monitor it. And I think the way that we've talked about holistic review, which is looking at your data, looking at what you're trying to achieve, basing it in your mission, developing your practices um, after that, and then looking at them again and, and not stopping at, oh, we had a good year in 2016, but saying, okay, uh, what has changed perhaps in our state? Um, are we still meeting our mandate? It's looking at the institutional context, but then the context that surrounds it perhaps. Um, perhaps there are demographic shifts that need to be taken into consideration. I think holistic review is a strong tool and really aligns quite nicely with, um, with some of the language in the Fisher decision. Great, great. So um, we are about to wrap up, Kim. Um, any parting words um, for uh, your veterinary friends here? <laughs> Yeah, so I would um, I just I'll close with um, something I shared with the folks at UC Davis. So I have a nine-year-old daughter um, who uh, right now wants to be a soccer player, and I'm trying actively to change that. Uh, <laughs> but but I but I what I told the folks at UC Davis is that um, her pediatrician is an African American woman, her dentist is an African American woman. And the veterinarian that we have for our 
newly adopted cats is an African-American woman. And it matters. It matters uh, that these three healthcare providers um, who live in our community, who practice in our community, are visible role models for, for kids like my daughter. Um, it matters that they are uh, committed to high quality uh, care uh, within uh, a community of color. Um, and it matters that she's able to see folks, um, folks that look like her engaging in professions that help others. So um, we talked a lot about holistic review as a tool, but I hope that um, the folks that listen in um, sort of can hold at the same time um, the ultimate work that we are all engaged in, which is um, a commitment to, um, to equitable health care and to a workforce that can help all of us achieve that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, that that was great. Um, for um, folks that are still listening or listening online, um, please know that part two of um, this discussion will take place next week with uh, Drs. Linda Lord, uh, Jackie Pelzer, and Jenny Hodgson. Um, from the Ohio State University's uh, School of Veterinary Medicine and Virginia Maryland's College of Veterinary Medicine. Um, and so those institutions will be talking a bit about what they've done to move um, closer to holistic admissions um, in the last few years. So thank you um, so much for joining us. You can um, listen uh, to the audio version of the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcast um, uh, app. You can also uh, be sure to like our Facebook page, Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Um, we are on Facebook and um, we'll be posting some of the show notes there as well as um, the archived version of this video. So thank you so much, um, Kim, for joining us. I look forward to being uh, building mates in just a couple of months and um, we'll look forward to chatting with you again. Thank you, Lisa. It was my pleasure to join you. All right. Thank you, everyone. See you next time.